What should we think about the universe? It is an ancient question for which many answers have been set forth ever since man started paying attention to the cosmos. In just the last 100 years, we have stumbled upon some very unexpected and quixotic aspects of our universe. Black holes, quarks, electromagnetism, gravity waves, and believe it or not, the fact that the universe is filled with an untold multitude of other galaxies is only a relatively recent discovery. What can explain such perplexing entities? Why quarks? Why stars even? Interpreting the cosmos requires we employ both our reason and imaginative faculties. And since the universe does appear to be quixotically extravagant and strange in not a few ways, it may be helpful to explore a few ideas from Miguel Cervantes' 17th century epic novel Don Quixote to see if the lovably mad protagonist might offer us some insights into the conundrums of exegeting the cosmos. Cervantes wrote his now iconic tale of Don Quixote in two volumes, the first published in 1605, just three years before Galileo would make his revolutionary discovery of Jupiter's moons, and the second volume published in 1615, just four years before Johannes Kepler would finish publishing his three laws of planetary motion. In Cervantes' novel, the comically heroic Hidalgo, who would later become the errant knight Don Quixote, for example, loved books about knights and chivalry so much that he, quote, sold acres of arable land to buy these books of chivalry and took home as many of them as he could find. He was so completely absorbed in these books that his nights were spent reading from dusk till dawn and his days from dawn till dusk until the lack of sleep and the excess of reading withered his brain and he went mad. Everything he read in his books took possession of his imagination, enchantments, fights, battles, challenges, wounds, sweet nothings, love affairs, storms, and impossible absurdities. The idea that this whole fabric of famous fabrications was real so established itself in his mind that no history in the world was truer for him." End quote. And it is the opinion of this author that Cervantes' epic could very well describe the apparently absurd and counterintuitive nature of quantum mechanics. Quixote's obsession with knights and chivalry could easily stand in as a metaphor for many physicists' unrelenting quests to understand the nature of the subatomic world. In modern physics, the tale is told that all our enchantments, fights and battles, challenges, wounds, sweet nothings, love affairs, storms, and impossible absurdities can all be explained in terms of quarks, gluons, leptons, baryons, hadrons, and so on. <laughs> is that quixotic madness, or is it science? Cervantes' description of Quixote might also accurately reflect the cultural disorder of the late 16th and early 17th centuries as well. As Galileo gazed at Jupiter through his telescope, and as Kepler fervently sorted through the astronomical piles of data gathered by Tycho Brahe, the Catholic Counter-Reformation, begun in earnest in the middle of the 16th century to counter Martin Luther's Protestant Reformation of 1517, was in full swing. Kepler was caught in the crossfire as a Lutheran and was routinely moving from place to place to avoid persecution for his Protestant convictions. To say the least, the political and religious environment of Europe during this era was rather tumultuous and made scientific investigations of the heavens a challenge especially when such discoveries turned out not to be in accordance with long-standing Aristotelian models of the heavens embraced by the church. If you are an unbeliever, Cervantes' description of Quixote 
might also be what you think about believers in their books. If you are a Christian, Quixote's description might be what you tacitly think about unbelievers and their books about atheism and the universe, with all its charmingly strange subatomic particles coming into existence from, well, nothing. Either way, whether you are the first to see moons going around Jupiter, the first to come up with laws about planetary motion, or the ultimate laws of the universe, or if you are a Christian who believes the heavens and the earth were created by God, or an unbeliever who does not believe the heavens and the earth were created by God, it seems inescapably unavoidable that one's worldview will be perceived by others as being rather foolish. I would imagine, though, that skeptics and theists could agree upon the fact that our world is indeed filled with, quote, enchantments, fights, battles, challenges, wounds, sweet nothings, love affairs, and impossible absurdities, end quote. These tumults are not just the way life was a few centuries ago, but the way things seem to be even now. Just exactly what that all means, however, is where the differences between the worldviews quickly emerge. But which is the right sort of foolishness to embrace? There is a scene in Don Quixote which I think best illustrates the primary differences between skeptics and theists as they attempt to understand the cosmos. Sancho Panza, Don Quixote's sidekick, and his liege, Don Quixote, are riding along a country road in the rain when they come upon a man plodding along on his donkey, quote, riding towards them with something on his head that shone as if it were made of gold, end quote. Quixote exclaims to his sidekick, quote, if I am not mistaken, we are being approached by a man who bears on his head Mambrino's helmet. Tell me, do you not see that knight coming toward us upon a dapple gray steed wearing a helmet of gold? End quote. To which Sancho replies, quote, All I can make out is a bloke on a donkey, brown like mine with something shiny on his head. End quote. Mambrino's helmet was a legendary piece of armor worn by the mythical Moorish king Mambrino. The helmet itself was said to be enchanted and bestowed upon the one who wore it powers of invincibility. Cervantes, as the narrator, clarifies the matter and tells us that the man on the donkey is no knight at all, but a humble village barber. The object on his head is his brass basin, which he put on his head to prevent his new hat from getting wet. Quixote, however, confident that the basin is the legendary magical helmet, charges at the poor fellow and demands he surrender the helmet basin. The barber is terrified and flees, leaving behind the brass basin. Sancho picks it up and hands it to his master, who then puts it on his head and wonders where the visor is. Sancho laughs heartily at the appearance of his master, wearing the basin, but the Hidalgo from La Mancha is unfazed. He thinks the misshapen helmet is the result of some sort of magical enchantment that resulted from it falling into the hands of someone who did not understand its power. Quote, I shall wear it as best I can, because something is better than nothing, particularly since it will certainly be adequate to protect me against stonings. End quote. Mambrino's helmet. Imagine this glittering object now as a star. What is a star? On the one hand, science tells us that a star is just, quote, a large sphere of hydrogen and helium with a smattering of other elements, all in gaseous form, end quote. In short, a star is an enormous ball of luminous gas. But is that all it is? For the believer, the stars declare the glory of God, created by God for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. But stop and think about this for half a second and ask yourself, why in the world is the universe filled with giant balls of flaming gas? Did it have to be this way? 
whether you believe the stars were created or not, it is a fantastically mind-boggling aspect of the universe. In one sense, it's like walking into your house or office to find the ceiling crammed with a variegated assortment of helium balloons. Immediately, you are struck by the delightful, unexpected surprise and absurdity of it all. It is utterly comedic and so unexpected that laughter is an entirely appropriate response. What is the occasion for the balloons in my living room? What's going on? Seen this way, the stars take on all the eccentric connotations of Mambrino's helmet, capturing our attention, arresting our gaze, stirring within us a sense of awe and wonder. The ancient tales about their divine origins as sentinels and heralds of a lost and forgotten kingdom suddenly strike you as actually having some plausibility. The balloons on the ceiling were indeed put there for a reason. They are messengers marking a special occasion, signaling to us, what do I remind you of? Now, there is a slight chance that the balloons are just there and you just happen to come home at the right time to see them. In other words, there is no reason or occasion for their existence on your ceiling. The balloons are just a brute fact, and your presence in their midst is also just a brute fact. Neither the balloons nor your existence require further explanation. Asking around for the reasons as to why the balloons are there is a pointless and foolish line of inquiry because, well, no one really knows. The comedic awe and curiosity they awaken within you are just feelings that would be foolish to pursue. And such foolish pursuits may likely be a sign of madness. Be careful. You don't want people thinking you have lost your mind. The stars are just gas, as the helmet is just a brass basin. Reading too much into the stars beyond their elemental constituency can lead to all kinds of astrological madness and folly. Better to leave the gas to the professionals. Of course, with the balloons, you would immediately assume someone intentionally put them there because it was your birthday. Of course, the helium is still there, but in this scenario, the gas was put inside the colorful balloons for a distinct purpose, to be a part of the message sent to you by those who love you. Happy birthday. Maybe as the recipient of the balloons, we are overjoyed, surprised, maybe feel a little guilty for all those times we didn't go out of our way to show our appreciation for others' birthdays. But nonetheless, the balloons are an expression of love and cheer and joy from our friends and family that often soften our otherwise callous hearts. But when it comes to the stars, is it foolish to think that the hydrogen and helium within them could also be an expression of love? What kind of love is it that fashions and makes and moves the sun and other stars? What kind of love-infused light sits in the canopy of our celestial ceiling? And what manner of greeting does it afford us? It almost seems too fantastical to be real. The one who made all the stars made us too? Is that really true? But it is a wonder that we here on Earth can know anything about the stars or the cosmos itself in the first place. If the universe is the result of chance or necessity, there is no reason to expect that it would be so readily intelligible to us. How do we explain that? In one sense, unlike Don Quixote, we have lost the imaginative ability to even interpret the basin as a helmet, something a child would certainly do, and who among us would dare tell the child that it was not so? We need to rekindle our childlike imaginations when we engage with the world and those around us. Imagination has its proper place in the cosmos. 
But our listless imaginative faculties often can only see the basin as a means of financial gain. Though Sancho recognizes the basin for what it is, even being taken in by its quality, he only sees it in terms of its monetary value. Quote, by God, this is a good basin. It's worth a piece of eight if it's worth a Maravetti, end quote, he tells Quixote. Without saying a word, Quixote, still stricken by his own interpretation of the basin, takes it and puts it on his head. But neither men know what the narrator knows. Neither men saw the basin as a means of service to others. The barber, as it turns out, is on his way to a small village to give one man a shave and to bleed another man who was sick. We are told that the barber was wearing the basin to protect his new hat from getting ruined by the rain. In short, the barber was intending to use the basin in service to his fellow man, even going so far as to travel in inclement weather. But that service never came to pass, as Quixote, in his madness, rushed at him and demanded, quote, Either defend yourself, base caitiff, or hand me of your own free will what is so rightfully due to me, end quote. Quixote's imagination was an imagination run amok unbalanced by reason. It is not that imagination is unreasonable. It is just that imagination needs to be balanced by reason when we investigate the properties of our universe. Is the universe just the sum total of its elemental particles? Just a brass basin? Or is it something like the magical Mambrino's helmet after all? The late Douglas Adams, author of A Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and an ardent atheist, Critiquing the idea of fine-tuning of the universe and the apparent specialness of our existence within it offers an analogy in his posthumously published work, The Salmon of Doubt. Quote, This is rather as if you imagine a puddle waking up one morning and thinking, This is an interesting world in which I find myself in, an interesting hole I find myself in. It fits me rather neatly, doesn't it? In fact, it fits me staggeringly well. Must have been made to have me in it. End quote. Adam's metaphor, however, empties ourselves of everything that makes us human. We are told to imagine that the puddle has sentience. It is a fatal blow against our own human intelligence. In trying to empty the universe of its telltale hallmarks of design and purpose, Adam's ends up reducing every sign of intelligence in the universe and in ourselves to nothing more than a puddle. In order to throw out the baby, he must convince himself that the baby and the bathwater are fundamentally no different. All is just empty space and can be discarded as meaningless happenstance. A popular YouTube video produced by an atheist on the topic of fine-tuning seems to echo Adam's sentiments. Only fools and blind lunatics would think our planet is intelligently designed and fine-tuned for life. Quote, We live on a tiny rock, hurling around a massive fireball at death-defying speeds in the vacuum of space. Our planet is bombarded by meteors and asteroids, encompassed with natural disasters, and has undergone at least five known mass extinction events. Our primary source of light and energy gives us cancer. Only a fool would say that this planet is intelligently designed. Only a blind lunatic would call it fine-tuned for human life when everything around us is trying to wipe us out. End quote. This particular video has over 110,000 views. But the notion that fine-tuning is merely the delusion of fools and blind lunatics is simply not true. The late atheist Victor Stenger, for example, who was the emeritus professor of physics and astronomy at the University of Hawaii, 
wrote an entire book attempting to argue against the fine-tuning of the universe, titled The Fallacy of Fine-Tuning. His speculative arguments, however, were systematically explained and thoroughly refuted by cosmologist Luke Barnes in a comprehensive 2011 paper titled The Fine-Tuning of the Universe for Intelligent Life. In this paper, Barnes notes that there is an overwhelming amount of scientific support for the reality of fine-tuning. Quote, There are a great many scientists of varying religious persuasions who accept that the universe is fine-tuned for life. Barnes himself draws no metaphysical conclusions about fine-tuning in the paper and is quick to point out that there is not widespread agreement on the metaphysical implications of fine-tuning. Stenger's belief that fine-tuning is fallacious, however, is far outside the accepted scientific consensus. Fine-tuning, for most every physicist and cosmologist familiar with it, seems to be as evident as the sun in the sky. Stenger's objection to fine-tuning, however, seems to be grounded in his atheistic presuppositions. Writing at the end of his 2012 book, God and the Folly of Faith, Stenger says he has, quote, an urgent plea to scientists and all-thinking people. We need to focus our attention on one goal, which will not be reached in the lifetime of the youngest among us, but which has to be achieved someday if humanity is to survive. The eradication of foolish faith from the face of this planet. End quote. As it stands, the very fact that we can understand our planet, let alone the solar system, galaxy, and universe in which we reside, is still something of a mystery for many scientists who do not embrace any kind of theistic conception of the universe. Quote, After all, there is no obvious reason why we should find ourselves able to understand the fundamental structure of nature, end quote, write John D. Barrow and Frank Tipler in their landmark book, The Anthropic Cosmological Principle. The uncanny structure of nature is a fundamental reality that most scientists would readily affirm. Again, not the musings of fools and blind lunatics. Quote, it is also, in part, a consequence of the fact that we have found nature to be constructed upon certain immutable foundation stones, which we call fundamental constants of nature. As yet, they note, we have no explanation for the precise numerical values taken by these unchanging dimensionless numbers. They are not subject to evolution or selection by any known natural or unnatural mechanism. The fortuitous nature of many of their numerical values is a mystery that cries out for a solution. End quote. In their 2004 book, The Privileged Planet, Guillermo Gonzalez and J.W. Richards conclude that the Earth does seem to occupy a unique place in the cosmos after all, one that affords us the ability to conduct scientific investigations and have remarkable vistas of the universe itself. Quote, Earth's conditions allow for a stunning diversity of measurements, from cosmology and galactic astronomy to stellar astrophysics and geophysics, end quote. They note that, quote, As we stand gazing at the heavens beyond our little oasis, we gaze not into a meaningless abyss, but into a wondrous arena commensurate with our capacity for discovery. Perhaps we have also been staring past a cosmic signal far more significant than any mere sequence of numbers, a signal revealing a universe so skillfully crafted for life and discovery that it seems to whisper of an extraterrestrial intelligence immeasurably more vast, more ancient, and more magnificent than anything we've been willing to expect or imagine. End quote. And yet, skeptics will continue to insist that, quote, humanity should accept that science has eliminated the justification for believing in cosmic purpose, 
and that any survival of purpose is inspired only by sentiment, end quote. Carl Sagan, in his 1996 book, The Demon-Haunted World, Science as a Candle in the Dark, opines that, quote, no contemporary religion and no New Age belief system seems to me to take sufficient account of the grandeur, magnificence, subtlety, and intricacy of the universe revealed by science. The fact that so little of the findings of modern science is prefigured in scripture, to my mind, casts further doubt on its divine inspiration. But, of course, I might be wrong, end quote. Sagan concedes that the universe has grandeur, magnificence, subtlety, and intricacy on the one hand, but on the other believes that because the Bible does not mention what modern physics has uncovered about the universe, it renders scripture suspect. But the conclusion begs the question, why would God have to disclose in his word the intricacies and mathematical complexities of the heavens and the earth as understood by 21st century science? But this brings up another question. Has science once and for all buried God, as Oxford mathematician John C. Lennox has asked? It tries to, at least those scientists who are predisposed to maintaining a strict secular materialistic worldview. Yet the more such scientism makes a concerted effort to keep Jesus in the tomb, all the more grace and mercy and love and truth shall abound. The light continues to shine out of darkness. Crucify the Lord and maker of the heavens, pierce his hands and feet with nails and his side with a spear, take his body down from the cross and lay it in a tomb hewn from solid rock, place a huge stone in front of the sepulcher and put your best soldiers in front of it to make sure no one steals the body. But no matter the safeguards, the way, the truth, and the life, the very architect of Andromeda and billions of other galaxies like it knows how to move stones and break seals. The bright and morning star will not remain entombed for long. As Lennox notes, quote, Far from science having buried God, not only do the results of science point toward his existence, but the scientific enterprise itself is validated by his existence. As God asks his beleaguered servant Job, quote, Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? End quote. Ancient though it is, it remains a relevant question for both believer and unbeliever alike. So come and see. Put on your Mambrino's helmet and come along with Alan and I as we explore the atheist objections to the fine-tuning of the universe on this episode of Good Heavens. Alan, one of the things that you and I both have talked about recently is the resurgence uh, or the popularity of the fine-tuning argument uh, as argued by skeptics and atheists and people who are not Christians. There's a lot of, um, you can go on Facebook, you can go on YouTube or Twitter or any kind of social media platform and see uh, the, the vested interest that skeptics and atheists take in this topic. And there's a lot of popular videos out there that have a lot of views. Um, and they kind of take the track that Christians aren't aware of this argument. And so that if they bring science, as Luke Barnes said in one of his uh, blog posts that I read, science, 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 therefore no God, right? <laughs> uh, so it seems like that, that they bring to bear on, on believers the idea uh, or try to debunk uh, the idea of fine-tuning, or they're, they're satisfied that their videos and their, their points that they're making um, 
more formally like Vic Stinger, the late Vic Stinger, who uh, Dr. Barnes, uh, Luke Barnes had, uh, had critiqued at length. But uh, on a more popular level, um, like I said, there's, there's a, a prolific amount of atheist videos and skeptic videos and, um, and uh, non-believer rejoinders to the cosmological argument or the fine-tuning argument. So uh, in general, what are your impressions of this? Because you've studied this more formally uh, and you, you, see said, you, you told me the other day that you saw something reoccurring over and over again in these videos. What, what are some of the, the typical themes that you would see? Yeah, I started off by watching a video by Holy Kool-Aid, which had a, over 110,000 views on it, hits, if you will. And then I watched one by The Friendly Atheist. I just tried to look at what are the most popular videos out there. Because uh-huh. m- most of my research, honestly, I-, I had never really looked much online. I've tried to focus on the academic literature, uh-huh. Uh-huh. trying to read the best arguments from both sides in that context. But right. uh, I-, I decided to do a bit of research and watched, you know, you know, five to ten of the non-specialist academics like myself (laughs) talking about this yeah and by the way i think they i think they're bringing this up and more in response to christians or apologists claiming that hey this is a good argument for god's existence so in in one sense then these are responses to christian apologetics uh arguments for fine-tuning i think so yeah so they're trying to largely they do seem to be saying that hey we can debunk this this is very misguided and in fact, they're not just attacking it as an argument for God, but they seem to be wanting to dispute the physics-only claim that the universe is finely tuned for life, which mm. is a metaphysically neutral claim yeah. that there's extra work to be done to make that into an argument for God, and that may or may not work, but they seem to be not just wanting to argue against the metaphysical claims based on this evidence, but disputing the science itself, which I think... It's I find especially problematic, especially <laughs> clearly problematic. Right. I, and, and you are more, you have a very, as we've said in the introductions, uh, you have a, a tremendous science background in this, in this subject. And so you've looked at it, as you said, more formally. Um, so Christian apologists will put this out, but it's still important for us as believers to be able to have some sort of fundamental working knowledge of this so that we can maybe we see a video or our friends have seen a video or you know somebody at school or or you know if you know an atheist or somebody that's knowledgeable about science this is a good thing to have in your arsenal of conversation right it's good to know a little bit the basics about it right it is you know i was reading recently there's a an interaction that that jesus has actually with some jews that are you know they're appealing to moses and trying to put down jesus Mm mm-hmm and he, he says basically something to the effect that, you know, Moses will be your judge, you know, the one you're turning to. Mm-hmm. And for many skeptics, science is something that they high, hold in high esteem, Yes, which is all well and good, but they, they want to make claims beyond that, that, you know, they yeah. go from science to scientism. Right. The, uh, that, the, that there's nothing beyond nature. Right. And that's, that's not a scientific, uh, that's not a scientific, it's a philosophical, yeah, it's claim. A philosophical yeah. claim to be able to say that there's nothing beyond nature, just as it is metaphysical to say that there is something beyond nature. So there's exactly. not, science is not uh, capable of covering uh, all kinds of human knowing. But oftentimes it is wielded as though it were the all-sufficient ground of all-knowing and all-being, like you said. And that is scientism. So what are you seeing in these popular-level videos, Alan, that's bothering you? Just to close the thought there before, though, that the reason I brought up the the thing that Jesus had said was Mm -hmm. just to point out that 
even if you don't yourself know much about science, or you could at least point people to examine the fine-tuning yes. right. argument. Right. Uh, because if if many skeptics will hold science in such a high esteem that if you can show them how science gives some evidence for God, that can really get their attention. Absolutely. So that was the point of that, just to tie that together. But you, so you're wanting to know more about what are you seeing in these popular level videos that are responding to the Christian apologists? I notice a lot of repeated points. There seems to be a lot of commonality in their responses. For example, several of them mentioned the puddle analogy, which we could talk through. If you yeah, want. that's the uh, that's Douglas, Douglas Adams, Adams, and uh, he was the author of A Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and he wrote, uh, I think this was published after he died, uh, in a work called The Salmon of Doubt, and he says, quote, This is, rather as if you imagine, a puddle waking up one morning and thinking, This is an interesting world I find myself in, an interesting hole. I find myself in. Fits me rather neatly, doesn't it? In fact, it fits me staggeringly well. Must have been made to have me in it! Exclamation point. End quote. And, and I've heard this too. I've heard this a lot. That, uh, that, that, well, it's just like this puddle, right? Here, life on a planet is like a puddle in a hole. But unfortunately, I think what that comment does is uh, denigrates human intelligence. It just takes for granted human intelligence, and it basically makes our thought uh, no better than a puddle in a hole, right? He, uh, Douglas Adams is assuming the sentience and the intelligence and the ability of the puddle to recognize its surroundings, and he just kind of throws that out uh, when he makes this analogy. And I think in order to remove the apparent fine-tuning from the universe, you end up eviscerating your own intelligence. Because if, if the world is not intelligent, which it supremely seems like it is, what does that say about human sentience? Right? Yeah, I think that is a good response, Dan. I think also, though, we should point out just how disanalogous this example is to fine-tuning. It's really quite the opposite. In the analogy of the puddle, as the puddle gets smaller and smaller, you know, any amount of water will conform to uh-huh. the walls right. of dirt. Or you can think about the fact that any configuration of shape for the hole would, would hold still hold, hold water. Would hold, hold water, right. Whereas what we found in fine-tuning is, is quite the opposite. You of need all a specific the configurations, only certain ones right. will support life. Right. You need a very specific uh, hole, if you will, uh, to support the kind of uh, thoughtful, sentient beings who could examine the hole. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, so our brain chemistry, everything, all the atoms and molecules have to be arranged in a peculiar way for us to be able to take note of our surroundings. In so, fact, yeah, I would want to point our skeptical friends to, you know, look at someone like David Deutsch, an atheist physicist who studied fine-tuning in detail, and he explicitly talks about this analogy and says that it doesn't hold water. Okay, so, so and I he's no friend should, to the faith either, right? Not at all, no. no it's, it's so disanalogous to fine-tuning, it just doesn't make sense. I have a quote from a gentleman who is a professor of philosophy at the University of Colorado in Boulder. You know who he is. You've read his work. I think we've both read his work. Uh, Bradley Monton. I'm not sure he's still at that university. Don't know. Okay, that was several years ago. But he's an atheist. He was a skeptic. Uh, who wrote a book called he was that that advocated for intelligent design, but he was an atheist advocating for intelligent design and uh, Dr. Monton says quote "The argument doesn't stop me from being an atheist, but I don't have any completely definitive objections to it, and I have problems with all the objections that are presented as completely definitive. This is why I consider the fine tuning argument to be somewhat plausible 
And that's coming from yes. an atheist who's. He says it makes him less sure of his atheism. <laughs> so I appreciate his yeah his honesty. candor. It's it's and, and you know and that's where I think that that the lot it's important to understand that that this this fine tuning has rattled everybody right in terms of in the in the sciences it, that people are Maybe taking not notice everybody, of it. But no, it's, I mean it's gotten a lot of attention. It's gotten a lot of attention. Susskind used the the term that uh, Titanic. Uh, he said something about it being a. A Titanic controversy or something. Titanic, as in it's a huge ball. It's of wax. a huge deal, and it, now he would want to point to a string multiverse explanation of the fine tuning, but okay. he's saying that it's having huge impacts on things. All right, so here are some intelligent uh, skeptics who are grappling with this issue of fine tuning. What is another thing you're seeing in the popular level videos, Alan, that you'd like to address? Another common complaint, and I definitely hear this in personal interactions quite often with uh-huh. the skeptics, is they say, well. How can you say the universe is fine-tuned for life when we can't even live in most parts of the universe? You know, ah, we the, die in the vacuum of space. and Yeah, the inhospitable argument that we can't live everywhere in the universe. Yes. What do you find problematic with that argument? Well, th- the initial thing to think about is that it's, it's totally a theological complaint, basically. It's, it's, it's reading a lot into divine psychology. Now, the fine-tuning argument itself, we could admit that you at least need to say that it's not terribly implausible that God would want to create life for a fine-tuning argument. Sure, it seems reasonable. But it's important even there to realize that you don't need to assume it's any more than, say, one in a million chance God would want life and the argument could go through Mm because it's up against the fine-tuning, which is often 1 in 10 to the 40th power or 90th power for the cosmological constant. But what they're trying to say is that there seems to be no way God would have wanted to have these vacuum of space or this enormous universe why why is life in such a small part of it i see so that the, it is a theological assumption smuggled in under the guise of science why would god limit life to this planet or specifically very narrow corners of this planet why is so much of of space of the universe seemingly uninhabitable uh, but that is no argument against fine-tuning so the improbability of their uh, well the the smallness of life in the universe does not at all it's a, it's a theological assumption as you said that, that they're presupposing something that if god really did exist then the universe would have been more more livable correct is that that's the basic premise of it right right and there's several issues with that you could start off even just at the scientific level let's say that you want to put breathable air throughout the whole universe well the universe would collapse if it were that density in, in very short time or the Earth couldn't maintain its orbit if it was fighting against that kind of uh, friction, wind resistance. It yeah, would so spiral into the sun rather rapidly. Right, so we can't have uh, the way things are. We, can, we have to contain universes. We have to contain atmospheres to very specific locales. And the, I mean, of course, the skeptic then could say, well, wait a minute, you're saying that there's this all-powerful God. Couldn't he have designed a universe where you somehow had more of the universe in which we could inhabit? Mm-hmm. But if you think in terms of just this earth that we live on, who who of us has really visited all of the cool places on earth? Yeah, I've never been down to the bottom of the Mariana Trench. Or I've <laughs> I mean, I haven't been to the South Pacific. I would lo- love to go there and check it out or yeah. go to the Himalayas. You know, right. there's there's plenty of space to move around here. Uh, yeah. And, but again, I think, Alan, the, the objections that God is all-powerful or God could do this or God could do that, those kinds of objections to fine-tuning are actually a kind of theology smuggled in under the guise of science. They, they seem to say, uh, presuppose that if God, then he would have done this. And that, that's just not an objection that, is, that, is a, that defeats fine-tuning at all. 
I think, yeah, the you have to have a really strong God complex, I think, to be confident that you would know exactly what God would or wouldn't do. And again, our our claim in making a fine-tuning argument is a very modest one compared to the claim that the density of life needs to be a certain parameter or something Mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, the other thing you could think in terms of, let's suppose you ask the skeptic, well, how many persons, maybe they're not all human, whatever, but how many persons do you think God should have created? Right. And whatever number you say, we really don't know for sure that there isn't that number. We live in a huge universe, very spread out. There could be reasons, for example, maybe God wants to separate humans from other life forms because he knows that there's a tendency for us to... (laughs) We're quarantined. You know, we're we're bad at things like, you know, discrimination against different races. How much worse would it be against people? Yeah, what would we be like on different planets with other races? people were different kind... Yeah, it just... There's a lot of potential reasons why God might want to separate us. Absolutely. And as Luke Barnes has pointed out, too, if if the universe is trying to kill you through the vacuum of space, it's doing a terrible job. (laughs) There's been all of one person that's ever died... Yeah. from that and you have to go to so much trouble to try to leave earth's atmosphere right you do. so i, I mean yeah it is a it seems like a quarantine and it seems like if we go past that we risk our it's a it's a life risking endeavor to to go out there um so one of the things that I noticed in one of those videos that we, we've we been talking about was that one of the atheists put forward the idea of, okay, if God really existed, then here's what the universe would be like. And he laid out a, a schematic of what he thought a universe created by God would be like. But again, more theological presupposing there. So even far yeah. more than what a Christian would even do. I don't know what God might have done or could have done or should have done, right? We're only told what he did do, and we only have what we do have. But uh, the the idea of trying to refute fine-tuning by projecting an imaginary universe does not defeat the argument. It it, it only enforces the argument, I think. Yeah, I think it's a straw man that try to say it's got to be this very particular way that— you know, no Christians are advocating or right. there's not there's nothing in the Bible that says it has to be certain ways. I've got a quote from uh, the physicist, uh, the theoretical physicist Freeman Dyson, who wrote in 1979 uh, that the more I examine the universe and study the details of its architecture, the more I find that the universe in some sense must have known we were coming. That <laughs> gets your attention. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I've also got one from uh, the 6th century Christian philosopher, Bothius. He, he wrote The Consolation of Philosophy when he was imprisoned and, I think, awaiting execution. Um, it's, a, it's a great book. I had to read it in, uh, for my master's thesis. Uh, and Bothius writes, and this is, this is in the 5th, 6th century, he says, As for those who boast of their physical attributes, how mean and fragile is the possession on which they rely? Can you outmatch elephants in bulk or bulls in strength? Can you surpass tigers in fleetness of foot? Contemplate the extent and stability of the heavens, Bothius says, and then at last cease to admire worthless things. Even so, you should marvel at the heavens, not so much for those features as for the innate reason by which they are guided. So there in the 6th century, as a Christian philosopher who knows that there is wisdom in contemplating the order of the heavens. What do you think? It is interesting that some skeptics want to almost be in a smaller universe the way they talk. They complain about yes. this vast size. Right. But do you really want to take away these beautiful galaxies and stars and things which convey the grandeur of the universe? 
I, I really don't think I think most of them love science and they, they love astronomy. I don't think they would want to get rid of that. Okay, so if you want to engage your skeptic friends about fine-tuning, what do you recommend? I think they should read things like A Fortunate Universe and engage with the, you know, the skeptics, they're, they're not really engaging with the best arguments from the Christian side. They're Kind of a straw man. They're not even dealing with the best science, I would say. They're not out there reading what uh, Susskind is saying, even skeptics of... Uh, people that wouldn't believe in God but uh, see fine-tuning as a real phenomenon, they don't seem to be taking seriously those kinds of things. Okay. So, so, I, think, so I think those skeptics need to do more reading and looking at the scientific literature and not just latching on to a few things that they, they've heard here or there. So it would behoove us all to study this at a deeper level, just Christians and atheists in general, and have more deeper, meaningful conversations about this than than through the medium of YouTube. There's nothing wrong with YouTube. We're not saying there's anything wrong right. with YouTube, but it's just that to, to get at the deeper levels of these things, it, it requires a lot more sustained thinking about it. It does, yeah. And it, there are a number of objections that you have to think through to see if this argument works or not. Okay, all right. And in some cases, for example, John Hawthorne, he's a really top metaphysician, really top philosopher. His initial reaction to fine-tuning was, I don't know about this. I mean, he was a little reluctant, but he eventually came around after thinking through the different objections and okay. analyzing it. He's, he's pretty sharp in Bayesian probability theory, and okay. he ultimately came to think that it's an excellent argument. So I think it can be a little bit intimidating sometimes for people, but I encourage people to, to read books like A Fortunate Universe by Barnes. and Yeah, and get into the fact that, that at least if nothing else, that – Skepticism, atheism, uh, scientism as it stands has not debunked the argument by any stretch of the means. It still remains a central core tenet uh, to modern physics and cosmology, correct? I think we're on firm ground in saying that the universe is finely tuned for life. And I think, I think it's a good argument for God as well. All right. So that's what we'll be talking about in the next episode. How do you go from fine-tuning arguments to God and maybe more specifically Christianity? Because fine-tuning doesn't give you Christianity. Right. Right. It, but people always do ask, and then you've been in debates and had conversations with people who ask, how do you go from fine-tuning maybe to specifically Christianity? But fine-tuning doesn't initially give you Christianity. It gives you a, a God, uh, at least, uh, theoretically, and then you go from there. But we'll talk more about that in our next episode. Thank you, Alan. Thank you. Thank you.